Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders came again, said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. The theologian and pastor and founder of the Fuller Theological Seminary, Daniel Fuller, once wrote, This then is the sense in which people are totally depraved. We have all treated God in the most insulting way by registering again and again a vote of no confidence in his promises. I think one of the greatest joys of my life is to work with a youth group here at First Baptist Church. I actually started off as the youth pastor here and um, and I've continued to work with the teens even to this very day. Um, there was a point where I thought maybe that the Lord might bring a different youth pastor, but praise the Lord, he hasn't yet because I've had a chance to watch these kids grow up, and I love it. I love these kids. I love being around them. I love just you know, watching them grow. And one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping the teens to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. My goal is not to just help them behave for their parents so that the parents would want me to do that, right? And my goal is not to just help them avoid doing stupid things, though that is certainly high on the list. But my goal ultimately is to help them to fully understand the good news of the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And I want all the teens in our youth group uh, to know and to understand the gospel so that they repent and believe it and are saved. But I also want them to know it well enough to be able to actually express that gospel and share it with other people. And so naturally, we talk about the gospel all the time. If you ask the teenagers, what do we talk about? We talk about the gospel all the time. Well, there was a particular Sunday I was really trying to drive home a point and help them to understand, you know, what a person's real need for the gospel is. And, and I used an analogy to drive that point home. And I, and I said, what if someone were to walk into this room right now and look at you and say, you need to take this pill right now. Would you take the pill? And they were like, no, that's stupid. (laughs) That's a dumb thing to do. And I asked, well, why? Why would you you not take it? And they said, well, because we don't even know what the pill is. We don't know what it's for. We don't even know who this guy is. We don't know what's going on here. We don't know what the pill does. I said, fair enough. I asked, what if 
the things were a little bit different. And a doctor was to walk into this room right now and came up to you and said, you were dying in this moment of a horrific, painful disease, and your only hope is to take this pill right now. Would you take it? And they go, of course I would. Of course. And I asked, well, what's the difference? Well, because we know what the pill is for. We know what the diagnosis is. We know what the problem is. We know the reason for taking the pill and what the pill actually does. And then I saw the light go on. And in that moment, I was able to explain to them that people don't take medicine unless they understand the diagnosis for the medicine. People don't accept solutions to problems unless they understand the problem. People don't accept the good news unless they understand the bad news that makes the, the good news necessary. And people won't believe the gospel unless they understand who they really are and their need for the gospel. This is a truth that we came face to face with actually in the text before us. This is the truth that we see um, that Peter himself faces. You see, it's popular in our culture today with well-meaning people. And I want you to hear me on this. This is well-meaning people. But it's popular in our culture today to call Jesus, to call people to Jesus in order for him to make their life better. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. Our culture calls people to Jesus so that, that, that he can give their life some sort of purpose and meaning. We see it all the time. Famous Christians say, they talk about God and, and how he has a wonderful plan for their life, for people's lives. Come to Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. American evangelicals call people to try on Jesus, right, and see how he works out for you like, like you're trying on a new t-shirt or you're, or you're test driving a car. It's popular to call people to Jesus who, 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 who is there simply to smooth out the rough patches in your life, who's there to make things go a little bit better. Who makes sense of the, of the, of the, the dips in, in your life. But hear me. Those things do not bring people to the gospel. They do not bring people to Christ. None of those things help people to see why they need Jesus. You don't need Jesus because you're depressed. Now, understand, Jesus absolutely does help people with depression all the time. But that is not your greatest need. You don't need Jesus because you're looking for a purpose in your life. Now, Jesus absolutely can give you the greatest purpose in your life. And if you lack purpose, he can certainly provide that. But that is not your greatest problem. A lack of purpose is not the issue. There are lots of people who do not have Christ in their life that have lots of purpose. You don't need Christ because you're lonely. You don't need Christ because your marriage is falling apart, even though that Christ can help and rescue marriages, that is not your greatest problem. None of those reasons are compelling enough to bring a person to Christ. They're not. None of those reasons are compelling enough to cause a person to follow Christ. None of those are compelling enough to cause you to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. Which is what following Jesus requires. That we deny ourselves and pick up our cross and willingly suffer for his cause. You see, you need Christ. You need the gospel for a much more important reason than all of those combined. You need Christ because the diagnosis of your life is more grim than you can possibly even imagine. You need Christ because the future is hopeless without him. 
You need Christ because in the end, He is your only hope. Your hope is not a pain-free, problem-free life here and now, though it would be nice. Your hope is not to live happily ever after in this life, though we all wish for that. Your hope is not more money or, or a great retirement or a wonderful marriage, though we want all of those things. Your hope is the fact that Christ came into the world to rescue you from your sin and the wrath of God. Your hope is that you were once helpless and hopeless, but Christ came and did for you what you couldn't do for yourself to make a way for you to be saved and to be reconciled back into a relationship with God that you were created for. That is your hope. But you will never see your need for that hope. You will never see your need for Christ. You will never fully see your need for the gospel until you come face to face with, with the bad news of who you are. And that is what we're going to see in the text here. Peter finally comes face to face with who he really is. We finally, he finally gets past his false self-image. And he finally has to lay down his bravado and his self-confidence. And he has to finally face full on who he really is in here. Now there's a, a couple things to keep in mind before we jump into the text. First we need to keep in mind is that this is that Mark is making a point to portray Peter here. And, and understand, we can trust Mark's you know, perspective because, because Mark is actually recording Peter's own words, his own eyewitness account here. And so Mark portrays Peter as a very strong, vocal, and confident man. In fact, he is bold and he is, as we can see, borderline arrogant at times. If you, if you see Peter in the text, you see that in him. Remember, it was Peter who rightly confessed Jesus as the Messiah to which Jesus praises him, right? And it's not even like a breath later, right? Jesus tells him that he's going to be killed and resurrected, and, and Peter takes it upon himself to straighten Jesus out. He publicly rebukes Jesus as if he has the, the authority to do something like that. And he says, no, 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 no. What are you talking about, Jesus? That's never going to happen to you. You see, Peter is a very confident and strong-willed man. He is very powerful. In fact, if you remember, he was, one of the, he was the only disciple who actually had the courage to ask Jesus to invite him out on the water. And he had the courage to actually get out of the boat onto the water and walked on water with Jesus. No one else did that. I mean, he ended up failing, but come on. Who else could say that they did that? You see, Peter's very confident. He's very powerful. And even more than that, Peter has an especially close relationship with Christ. Remember, G Peter was one of the three that was with him when Jesus actually brought the little girl back to life, Jairus' daughter. Right? Peter was on the mountain with Jesus when Jesus was transfigured before his eyes and he saw the glory of Christ. Peter and Jesus were super close. And if you remember, right, on this very night, on this very night, at the Passover supper, Jesus told his disciples that he would be betrayed and all of them would fall away. And how did Peter respond to that? In classic Peter style, he says, even though they're going to all fall away, I'm not going to. They're going to fall away. They're going to fail you, Jesus, but I'm not going to. In fact, he even boldly proclaims, if I must die with you, if I must die with you, I will never deny you. 
Right? In fact, he even said, recorded in one of the other Gospels, that I will go to prison, I will go to death, even for you, but I'll never, ever deny you. I mean, I don't know if you could paint it any more clearly than that. This is a picture that we see painted of Peter, self-assured, confident, a boastful man, obviously a very strong man, a working man, right? He's a fisherman. And he probably believed that Jesus called him because somehow Jesus needed him. Well, he called me, of course, because he needed someone like me. He needed my talents and my abilities and my strength. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind when we see how Peter sees himself. This is important for us to understand. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that this section of the text, as we've talked about, is connected together, as we saw a couple weeks ago, right? That, that, that Peter's, that, that this, this section is actually connected to Jesus, that Peter following Jesus but keeping his distance, and then, and then Jesus' trial at the high priest. We have what's, what, what's called a Markin sandwich. Mark kind of writes these like little sandwiches, these, these literary you know, pieces put together. You have two related events on the ends, and then you have something really important in the middle. And they all come together to make a point. That's what we see here. Mark reveals Peter's unfaithfulness as he begins to keep his distance from Jesus in the, in, on the one end. And then Mark confirms Peter's unfaithfulness on the other end as he denies Jesus, we're going to see. But in the middle of that, right, we see Jesus being contrasted to Mark. Jesus is faithful while Peter can't remain faithful. And that's the thing that we need to keep in mind here. Mark is purposefully contrasting Peter and Jesus so we can clearly see the difference between them. You see, on the one hand, we see throughout Mark, Peter, you know, talks the talk. That's Peter, right? Boastful, prideful, talking the talk. But we see with Jesus, he's the one that actually walks the walk. And that's what we're going to see throughout this text, is that Peter is going to come face to face with the truth about who he is. In spite of his bravado, in, st- in spite of his self-confidence, in spite of his sense of self-importance, and in spite of his good intentions, Peter's going to see that he is not what he's cracked up to be, and that he actually is worse than he has ever imagined. But it's going to be upon seeing this, that Peter's finally going to begin to see what his real need is. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 66. And for all those football fans, I'll go as fast as I can. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. So this is where we pick up the story, right? Where we left off. Peter, after Jesus' arrest, made his way into the courtyard, right? But he's keeping his distance from Jesus and warming himself by the fire, pretending to be one of the the crowd around him, all the while Jesus is upstairs in the home of the high priest, and he's being falsely convicted of blasphemy, and they end up beating him. And it was during all of this that the servant girl who belongs to the high priest notices Peter. She sees him in the light of the fire, and he is warming himself, and she recognizes him. Now, none of the Gospels actually tell us why that she recognizes him. But but the truth is that she does recognize him, right? She's seen him before. 
Perhaps she saw him in the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps, you know, he was teaching in the temple and she saw Peter with him. And the truth is, it makes sense that she would recognize him with Jesus because as self-important as Peter was, he was probably making a point to be close to Jesus. He was probably making sure all the strangers knew, I'm with Jesus, look at me, I'm with this guy. Right? Because think about this, Peter, like all the other Jews around him, right, and even the disciples himself, believed that Jesus, the rightful king, was going to come and take his place on the, on, the, on the throne of David and drive out the Roman army and then restore Israel to national uh, status. That he was going to create recreate the nation of Israel to be a superpower in the world again. And Peter expected, like the disciples did, to be VIPs in the new kingdom. They expected that they're going to be, you know, important people. In fact, they probably expect, he probably expected to be the right-hand man, you know, because I'm Peter and I'm with Jesus all the time. I mean, we know that, that the brothers argued about that and that they all argued about who was the greatest. And so it was probably safe to assume that, that Peter was probably purposefully visible in and around Jesus in public. Peter made it a point to make it be made known that I'm with this guy. And the truth is, this is not a very uncommon thing. We can relate to that, I think. Everybody wants to be around a winner, right? I mean, think about this. I'll make you a bet right now. No matter who wins the Super Bowl this, this Sunday, you will find that there are lots of new people who love that team that you didn't even know supported that team because they didn't support the team until they won the Super Bowl, right? And you'll see their, shir their shirts flying off the shelves, and, right? especially if their kid's like eight years old and under, right? Everybody wants to be connected to a winner. Everybody does. Everybody wants to be close to celebrities. Everybody wants to be known for knowing somebody important. When we see it all the time, how people in our culture that they call important, politicians, celebrities, athletes, are all surrounded by people who want to be known for being connected to them. I'm, I'm with them, right? I know that person personally. This is probably why the woman recognized Peter, because he had made it known Right, in better circumstances, that he was with Jesus, that he was one of Jesus' closest friends. Oh, you can ask me, because I'll, I'll talk to Jesus for you. But now Peter, he's not bragging anymore about his relationship with Jesus. He's keeping his distance. He's trying to blend in. He does not want to be noticed. He's not as bold about his association with Jesus anymore, which, again, is just like the rest of the world. Am, am I Right. When things are good, people will profess to be your friend. When things are good, people will say, they're with you. I've got your back. Right? When you're on top of the world, those closest to you love you. And they tell you how awesome you are, and they sing your praises. But let things go bad. What happens then? We've, we've all experienced it, right? Suddenly people get weird and disappear. You can't find them anymore. Suddenly people who, were, who you were depending on become really, really flaky. People that you, know, that you thought that you could count on suddenly have other things to do, other places to be. Everyone loves a winner. Everybody distances himself from a loser. Right? As it says, you know, when, uh, when you're smiling, the world smiles with you. When you cry, you cry alone. Right? And that's what we see in this text. Peter is just like everybody else. Right? He is... He's all bravado. 
And for all of his claims of being different and acting different, and he was not going to be like the rest of them, he's just like everyone else. Where he boldly says, I'm with Jesus. Now he's like, uh, I'm keeping my distance. But that doesn't work because now the woman recognizes him and she says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And you had to realize that this expression that, that she uses is, is antagonistic. It's an accusation. It's not just a, a casual observation like, hey, weren't you, don't you know him? This is actually, she's accusing him. And we know that because of the way that she refers to Jesus. She says, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. And the reason why she says it this way is because, and the reason why she refers to Jesus as the Nazarene is because of her disdain for Jesus. You see, the Judean Jews already looked down upon the Galilean Jews. Right? The city Jews look down on the country Jews. Kind of how things are in the world today, right? I mean, seriously, it's like how the, the, how, the, how the big city people all look down on people who live in rural communities. I mean, there's this automatically disdain for people who don't see things the way they do because they're not as sophisticated or, you know. That's, there's already that there, right? And then on top of that, right, she, she's looking down on them, right, because she's also... Right? The servant of the high priest, which means she already doesn't like Jesus because the master hates him. And so this is not a friendly conversation starter. She's actually confronting him. But look how he responds in verse 68. It says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Peter, who already was keeping his distance, quickly increases the distance both in his words and in his physical position. Not only does he keep his distance, but he's actually increasing the distance physically. Peter's denial not only is a denial that he was with Jesus, but it's an indirect denial. It's kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I'm not really sure what you mean, right? And, and, and Peter basically is feigning ignorance at this point. But then notice that he's fallen it up by moving from the middle of the courtyard near you know, that near the fires and the lights to the shadowy gate of the courtyard next to the street. See, Peter's physically moving further away from Jesus and closer to the exit so that he can escape. This confrontation makes, makes him move further away from Jesus, both in his word and also in his deed. Brothers and sisters, a time is coming. A time is coming where the world is going to confront you about your relationship with Christ. It's going to happen. The question that, 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 it, that you have to ask is, will you be fan, found standing firm saying, yes, I'm with him? Or will you be like Peter and we deny him and begin to move further into the shadows and hide there? That's really the question we have to ask ourselves. This is what we see around the world, by the way. It's a pattern we see around the world. And we're sort of seeing it in our country. We know that this is the trajectory. We see that happening. So this woman recognizes him, tells him as much. And this has startled him to the point now he's, his fear is growing. Right? And he denies knowing her and what she's talking. He denies knowing what she's talking about. And he starts making his way towards the door. And then in verse 49, it says, And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. 
Now, I want you to think about what's happening here because I think we're familiar with kind of how this plays out. As Peter begins to retreat from this brief encounter, wanting to kind of keep things quiet, he slips away to the shadows. She grows confident in the fact that she recognizes him. And not only does she confront him now, but now she's calling public attention to him. The tension begins to rise and mount now. She's saying to the people around him, hey, he's one of Jesus' followers, which again increases his fear. It's one thing for the servant girl to recognize him. It's a whole other thing now for the crowd to be starting to stir around going, is that him? Is he one of them? Right? But again, he denies it. Verse 70. Peter again denies being a Christ follower. Now the first denial he has, if you look at the language, it's a quick denial. It's like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about and move on. This denial actually um, the, the Greek language betrays the fact that he's repetitively denying it. It's not like he just denies it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not with him. I don't, I'm not with him. It's the idea that he's repeating himself you know, multiple times. His denial is beginning to grow in, in force as his fear begins to grow. And then in verse 70, it says, After a while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you were one of them, for you were a Galilean. Now Mark doesn't come out and tell us how they know that he is a Galilean. But Matthew, if you re read the companion account to this, tells us they recognize him by his accent. Right? They tell him that he's from Galilee because they know by the way he talks. It's similar to how we know someone's from the south around here. Right? I mean, the reality is, is, you know, when you talk to my dad, you realize that he wasn't born in California. And sometimes when you hear me talk long enough when I'm around him, you'll find that like, I'm connected to that, right? <laughs> it's, we know that people are from the South, but when they talk, we know that instantly when somebody's from Boston, we can hear it. Right? They recognize Peter by his accent. Right? And so they have him dead to rights. She accuses him of being with Jesus, he denies it, and now his accent is bearing witness against him. And the problem is, not only is the, the servant girl accusing him of being with Jesus, but multiple people now in the crowd are beginning to accuse him as well. And if Peter wasn't scared enough already, he's flat terrified now. Because now he's in real danger. And so he noticed how he responds in his terror. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, at this point, Peter has been keeping his distance, and, is, and he's denied being with Jesus and being one of his followers. But now his denial becomes a full-blown, forceful denial. In fact, there are three things I want you to notice about this. Number one, he invokes a curse. Now, it says in the ESV that he invokes a curse upon himself, but the Greek in the text here doesn't say explicitly he invoked a curse upon himself. It doesn't actually say who he invoked the curse on. It just says that he called down a curse. And the truth is, by the construction of the grammar and the context, Peter is likely cursing Christ. Right? In fact, Robert Stein in his commentary notes that the verb that's translated as, uh, as to invoke a curse is a verb that, that, it, that usually functions, as he says, as a transitive verb. You know, having an object, and this cursing is, is cursing someone else, is really kind of the idea. And in the context, the object is most likely Christ. The truth is, Peter is probably not cussing, cursing himself in denial, but rather he's cursing the one who he had been following. 
He's cursing Jesus as a demonstration of not belonging to him. This is how far his denial has gone. The one who has blessed him over and over and over again, now he curses. Which, by the way, is the story of all humanity. Right? God blesses all of mankind graciously over and over again. And what does mankind do? He curses him and denies his very existence. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. They deny him. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Our very nature to bless the one who, I mean, to curse the one who's been blessing us. And, and Peter, in his fear, shows his true colors as he curses Jesus. Notice then he also swears. Now we think that he's swearing like he's cursing, but that's not what he's doing. He's swearing an oath. Right? He is swearing an oath that he's not a follower of Jesus. I swear upon my children, I swear upon my own head, I swear to God, I am not his follower. And then it says, not only he's not to follow this man, but he says, I don't even know who he is. I don't know this man. I've never seen him. I've never heard his name. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know him. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus, just a few hours before, was sitting at the table next to Jesus looks him in the eye and confidently tells him, they're going to fall away, but not me. They're going to leave you, but I won't. Even if I have to go to prison, even if I have to die, I will not leave you, I will not fall away. But here Peter is only a few hours later. Not only is he keeping his distance from Jesus, not only is he denying being his follower, Peter curses Jesus and swears an oath, he doesn't even know who Jesus is is Peter's abandonment in Christ abandonment of Christ is now complete what began as just simply keeping his distance is now full on flowered into a full on denial of Christ Peter has completely failed and Peter has proven that he is not what he has made himself out to be. He is not brave. He is not bold. He is not loyal. He is not faithful. Yes, he may have loved Jesus. He might have felt an emotion for Jesus, but his love failed the test of fear. He's nothing like Christ. Jesus was faithful. Peter was not. Jesus' love overcame the fear of the wrath of God that he was about to face, Peter's love didn't. Jesus stood firm on the truth about who he is. Peter denies the truth. Jesus proclaimed to be the Messiah. Peter denied that he even knew his name. 
Jesus was the immovable rock that lasts forever. Peter is the little pebble that's easily crushed under the weight of his fear. Peter is everything that, I mean, Jesus is, is everything that Peter is not, which ultimately is the point. Jesus is what you are not. That's why we need him so desperately. That's why we need him so much. He came to be what we couldn't be and to do what we can't do. He is everything that we're not. And finally, Peter is now in the darkness, face to face with the fact that of what he really is. Because he's denied him three times in light of that. He immediately understands the weight of that. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him before the rooster crowed twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The charade is over. That's what we live in, by the way. So we try to pretend to be good people. It's a charade. Because the real Peter finally, under the circumstances, stood up. The real Peter was revealed for who he really is. A faithless, self-absorbed coward. He's like everyone else. For all that he thought that made him special, for all that he thought he was able to do, he was just like everyone else. He abandoned Christ just like everyone else. He failed miserably. And not only did he run for his life, he with his own mouth denied that he even knew Christ. And you the man that he watched heal thousands of people. The man who saved his life on at least two occasions we know of. The man who demonstrated his love for him over and over again. The man who had washed his feet just a few hours before in love and service. The man he spent three and a half years with. The man who he ate with and traveled with and slept under the same roof with. He cursed him. We have with us Kinsey and Sam, who are part of um, the Extreme Tour. They understand those bonds of service together and sleeping under the same roof and eating the same meals. And there's a certain bond that grows with people. Can you imagine what a person has to do to come to the place where they deny somebody they've spent so much time with? He curses him and swears an oath. I don't even know who he is. And you have to understand how devastating that denial is. Because, because this denial, this denial is the way Jesus will treat the people who are not in the kingdom who think that they are. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, he, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. The most devastating phrase a person will ever hear when they stand before Christ is those words, I never knew knew you. And here Peter says to the unbelievers around him, cursing Jesus and swearing an oath, I never 
knew him. Peter has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a wretched, broken sinner deserving nothing but the justice and wrath of God. It is in this moment we see the truth that there is nothing in Peter that is deserving of God's grace. Nothing. There's nothing within Peter. One of the greatest leaders in all church history, there's nothing in him deserving of eternal life. Nothing. He's completely bankrupt. And now Peter in this moment can finally see the truth of who he is. He can finally see how undeserving he is, how incapable he is, how helpless he is, how hopeless he really is. Finally now Peter can see that his self-sufficiency is a sham. Peter can see finally that he needs desperately to be rescued. Because before that he couldn't see it. And without this failure he would have never seen it. What you have to understand is Peter had to get here. He had to get to this place. He had to come to the place where he could finally see in the mirror who he really is. Where he could finally see what the real problem is. That the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. That the enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. Peter was the worst kind of enemy, by the way. Pretending to be Christ's friend. And Peter believed that he was. Peter believed that he was a good man. Peter believed that he was brave. Peter believed that he deserved the right to follow Christ. But now finally, he's at a place where he can see he's been living a lie. And now his heart is finally ready for the gospel. Now his heart's ready for the gospel. You see, for a person to come to a place where they will receive the truth of the gospel, they must understand the truth about who they are. If they're going to take the medicine of the gospel, they must understand the diagnosis of who they are in here. They must come to terms with the depth of their, their depravity. They must finally see they have nothing within themselves that warrants God's redemption. There's nothing in them. They must finally understand that they are not good people who occasionally do bad things, but rather they are depraved people who do only good things by the grace of God because he's restraining them from being as bad as they want to be. And let's be honest, we don't do all the bad that our hearts want to do. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me on this. Many people with good intentions try to win people to Christ by skirting the issue of sin and not addressing it. People, right, right many people just want to talk about just the love of Jesus. Many people want to sell, you know, Jesus as a remedy for what ails their life here and now only to never confront them about the greatest problem that they really have. We are so afraid to offend that we end up removing the offense of the gospel. But there's no hope in that. Pastor and author Joel Beakey asked this question of believers. He says, do you talk to others about our depraved nature and our desperate need for salvation in Jesus Christ? Do you say that you are no better than they are by nature? That we are all apart from the grace of God, sinners with a most terrible record, with a legal problem, as well as bad heart, which is a moral problem. 
Do you talk with, to them about the dreadful character of sin, that sin is something that stems back to the tragic fall in Adam and affects every part of us, so dominating our mind and heart and will and consciences that we are slaves to it? Do you describe sin as moral rebellion against God? Do you say that the wages of sin is a sin of death? The wages of sin is death now and for all eternity. The, the reason why he says this is because that's the only way people will really truly come to Christ. That's the only way people will truly receive the gospel. You realize what we're seeing in the American Christianity is, and its adoption of worldly philosophies and embracing cultural norms is rooted in us trying to invite people to take the medicine of the gospel for an illness that they're denying having. People who will not repent of things they don't believe they need to repent of. People will not believe a gospel that will deliver them from the judgment of God if they don't believe they're under the judgment of God. People will not choose to follow Christ in the deepest, darkest parts of the world, and they certainly will not deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him if they don't understand that He is the supreme treasure of our lives above all other things. No. When push comes to shove, when things get hard, people will act just like Peter did. and They will deny him and curse him. We must stop trying to convince people to follow Jesus because we might get left behind. We must stop trying to convince people to follow Jesus because he's promising you a pain-free, problem-free life. We must stop trying to convince people to follow Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. You realize that God had a wonderful plan for Pharaoh's life. He used him for his own glory. You must proclaim the truth of the good news of the gospel and always begin by explaining the bad news of who we really are. We're just like Peter, full of pride, self-focused, arrogant, boastful, probably with good intentions. But underneath it all, we're still faithless, and helpless wretches continually denying God in our actions, attitudes, and words left to our own devices. We must help people to see that our greatest need is not to become a better version of who we are right now. We need to help people to see that they must be reborn. They must have a new heart. That they are completely wretched apart from the grace of God. We must help them to see as Peter finally sees here, that we're unable to come, overcome the depravity of our own hearts by our own efforts. We can't fix it. We can't change it on our own. I mean, think about this. He realizes that he's failed and he weeps over his failure. But notice he doesn't immediately turn around and go back in there and say, Okay, guys, I was wrong. I know him and I follow him. Now arrest me too. He didn't have it in him to do that. And neither do we. We can't change our own hearts. We can't undo the stain of our own sin by our efforts. Isaiah 64, 6, very explicit says, We have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's filthy garbage before God. We all like a leaf. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We cannot save ourselves. We can't even change ourselves. The beginning of the gospel is coming to terms with who we are and how we're helpless to do anything about it. 
And then we need to see who Christ is. The faithful, innocent, spotless Lamb of God who willingly went to the cross and died for our sins. Now Peter doesn't understand this in this moment, but he will soon understand that. His heart is now ready to understand that. But right now, what he does know is that he failed his master, his beautiful, glorious, loving master. And in light of that, he weeps. His heart grieves over the depths of the ugliness of his sin. And what I need you to realize, of all the things I said, if there's one thing you remember, what I need you to realize is that his grief was both good and it was both necessary for him. This is not a popular thing to say, but it was good and necessary. His grief over his sin was good and he needed it. It's when our hearts are broken because of our sin that, that we finally can see the ugliness of our sin, that we can repent of it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for godly grief produces repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, Peter's grief is rooted in the fact that he was caught. I mean, excuse me, his grief is not rooted in the fact that he was caught. It is not rooted in the fact that people found out he was a phony. His grief is rooted in the fact that he denied what he said he would never do. He did exactly what he said he would never do. He denied his master. He turned his back on his master. His grief is rooted in the fact that he failed Christ, the Christ that loved him. And this is an important lesson that we need to learn because there's something in all of us, including me, that wants to take the sting out of the gospel for other people. We tend to want to spare them the grief that comes with coming to terms with sin. I'm a softie, just like the rest of you. I don't like hurting people's feelings. And because of that, we always tend to want to be encouraging and uplifting and inspiring. And we don't ever really come back around and confront people. We don't want people to cry. We don't want people to feel the weight of their guilt. And as a result, we mislead people into thinking they have a relationship with Christ that really doesn't even exist. They have no basis to have a relationship with Him. Because the truth is, if your sin doesn't grieve you, If your sin doesn't ever break your heart, if your sin doesn't ever pierce your conscience, I would say, be careful, you probably don't have a relationship with Christ. If your sin does not wreck you emotionally at some point in your life, I would check your relationship with Christ. Because having a relationship with Christ means understanding what it costs to set you free. Having a relationship with Christ is about seeing how beautiful Christ is and in light of that, seeing how heinous and vile and ugly your sin is. Godly grief for our sin requires repentance. That godly grief is is a good thing. It's good for you, it's good for your family, it's good for your neighbors, even when you don't want them to cry and be upset. We must not, in our good intentions, seek to spare people's feelings and rob them of the godly repentance that comes from their grief over their sin. Another way to say that is we need to stop pretending to be God, acting like we can make people believe. We preach the gospel and sow the seed and let the Holy Spirit do His work. Understand, Peter doesn't need a pep talk here. He doesn't need somebody to come alongside him and hug him and say, it's okay. We all fall short sometimes. 
He didn't need somebody to come along and say, you know, we're only human. What do you expect? I mean, they were really mean to you. No, he needed to feel the weight of his sin. He needed to see who he really was. He needed to see what his sin was going to cost. He needed to grieve his sin in order to let go of his pride and his self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness. It's when we see who we are in light of who God is that we understand how glorious Christ is and how depraved we are and how despicable our sin is. It's then that we can finally see and appreciate the fact that it was our sin and depravity that sent Christ to the cross. It was our sin, because of our sin, that he bore in his body the awful and terrible wrath of God that we deserve. We are right to grieve our sins. We are, it is good that we grieve because true grief leads to repentance. And that is what happens here. Peter's grief leads to repentance and ultimately to his salvation. If you remember a couple weeks ago, actually a few more than a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Nate Perkins, who was a fireman right there for a lot of years, but now pastors a church down south, um, he preached the, the parallel text in Matthew on this, and he talked about this, and he said that both Peter and Judas sinned egregiously against Jesus, and both of them experienced grief. But Judas's grief was not godly grief. In fact, it led him only to trust in the law, right? It didn't lead him to repent and believe the gospel, but instead it led him to try to absolve his own guilt by means of the law. Who did he go to? He went to the priests and he gave the money back in an effort to try to assuage his own guilt. What did that lead to? Him finally killing himself and not being redeemed. Peter's grief, on the other hand, pushes him ultimately to true repentance and eventually into trusting in the promise of the gospel that his sins, including this one, are washed away by the blood of Christ and that he is clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ by faith. The place that Peter will end up is the same place we must end up and that we must see our greatest need is and always will be Jesus Christ. I have to be really, really honest here. I'm, I identify with, a lot with Peter. Not because I think I'm some hero of the faith, because I'm not. But if there's a characteristic I see in myself is his self-assuredness. I was born with a self-confidence that I can do anything I set my mind to, and I was pretty cocky about it. You just ask that guy right there. He'll tell you that's who I was. Right? He knows me better than anybody else, and he knows what I was capable of. And this characteristic actually had served me many times and helped me go places, but it also got me in a lot of trouble at times, too. This was a characteristic that defined my life. Like I believed it was up to me. If it was to be, it's up to me. And I believe with all my heart I could do anything I set my mind to if I, and I could accomplish any goal. And, and, and to make things more complicated, I was a hardened atheist as well. Which means I convinced myself that, that I didn't believe in God and I suppressed that truth in my own unrighteousness. And understand, I had made a profession of faith when I was like five years old. Because my grandma told me, Jesus loves you and, you know, you need to invite him into your heart. And that's what I thought I did. And, but I was not saved. I had no idea what the gospel was. I had nothing, right? And throughout my teenage years and early adulthood, I would tell people that I, I was a follower of Christ. But with my lips and with my actions and my attitudes, I actually denied him continually. And there were times I professed to, be, to believe in Christ because I thought, 
you know, it was a good thing to get the blessings that came associated with that. But I was never a believer at that time. I was, I mean, I'd heard the gospel many times before, but I didn't have any desire to be different. But God, by His grace, began to humble me. And it, at one point in my life, I lost my business. I lost my home, and suddenly my life became really, really hard as Kim and I had to start over with nothing. And that self-confidence took over. I, I just decided I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone. I'm going to work really, really, really hard. I'm going to try my best. And for a period of time, it seemed like things were starting to get better. Like I could start to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And the self-fulfilling prophecy that Sherman could do what he wants to do was coming back true again. I could do what I wanted to do. But then one day, Kim calls me at work, and she's crying and wants me to come home. So I come home. I walk in the door. She's, um, she's just crying. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. What now? And then she says to me, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, we can't do this. We already have four kids. We're not going to have five. Right? We cannot do this. I can't afford another child. Life was already hard enough. I'm just barely getting back on my feet. I can't see how we're going to make it work. And so I convinced my wife to have an abortion. I convinced her to get on the phone, and we scheduled an appointment to murder our own unborn child. And so we called and made an appointment for the next Tuesday which seemed like an eternity to us because it was just Friday. I was really wanting to have this over with and done so I didn't have to think about it anymore. I'd had the whole weekend to kind of wrestle with it. But then Monday came, and I was still convinced that this is the right thing that we needed to do, and I got in my car and began to drive to Fresno, which is my, my Monday commute at that time. And as I was driving, I kept fighting back the thoughts that kept trying to creep up. I didn't want to think about it. I want to rationalize it. I just wanted to get past this. And I kept suppressing the truth, right? And I was resolved. This was our only choice. I had made up my mind that this is all the choices that we have. That's it. But somewhere between Visalia and Fresno, there was a billboard that caught my attention. And my eyes went right to it. And it says this. It's a child and not a choice. And in that moment, the ugliness of my sin, the sin that I was about to commit, started to become clear to me. And as it began to weigh heavy on me, I fought and I resisted it. I turned up the radio really loud. I gripped the steering wheel really, really tight. I tried to convince myself I'm looking off in the distance and I'm watching the road. I'm going to clear, clear my mind and in that moment, as I was wrestling with the ugliness, the heinous nature of the decision I had made and beginning to realize that is who I was, I, the atheist, felt God's presence in my life. Now, God didn't speak like out loud, audibly, but I felt him speak into my heart. And the message was clear. Sherman, you have compromised everything that you said that you believe in your whole life. All the things that you say about yourself that you hold dear, you have like just thrown to the wind at the first moments of trouble. If you do this, you will compromise all the way. And in that moment, I became fully and totally and completely aware of who I really was. I fancied myself all this time a good person. And here I am face to face with the fact that I am not a good person. 
I am not the moral person that tried to convince people that I was. I was not this bold, strong man who could come overcome any obstacle if I just set my mind to it. I was not a good example to my kids that I had supposed that I was. I was a hollow, shallow, vile, wretched sinner who was about to murder his own son. And in that moment, I came face to face with who I really was and how terrible my sin was. And it was in that moment that I finally came face to face how desperately I needed God and His grace. I'm going to tell you, had I never come to that place, had Christ never broken my heart, had I never been forced to look in the mirror at who I really was, I would have never turned. I would have never turned. I had everybody and their brother inviting me to church. I had everybody and their brother telling me about God, and I could argue with the best of them. It was not until God broke my heart that I could actually hear the gospel. By the grace of God, he allowed me to to fall completely on my face so that I could finally see the truth. And then it, and I could finally see the beauty of Christ and the hope of the gospel. This led to deep grief for my sin, which led to Kim and I repenting of our decision, which led to eternal life, but also sparing the life of our beautiful son. The blue-eyed monster that he is. who himself, by the way, has repented and believed the gospel and loves the Lord and loves to serve him. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not that just that Jesus loves me and wants me to be happy. Our hope is the fact that in spite of the fact that we are wretched sinners in rebellion against God, as we once reveled in our sin and loved our sin, by his grace, Christ came into the world and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, fulfilling the law that you couldn't fulfill, and then died on the cross to pay a debt that you couldn't pay, rose again, proving that what he did worked, and then sent the Holy Spirit into your heart to change and, 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 and break up that hardened heart so you could actually repent and believe the truth of the gospel and be saved. Jesus paid it all. And let us never forget then, it is not meanness or hardness of our hearts that we tell people about their sin. It is not us being unkind. There is no 11th commandment that says thou shalt always be nice. That is not part of the Christian life. Right? We need to be loving for sure. We need to be gracious to, to, to the best of our abilities. But we must tell people the truth of the gospel. We must tell them about their sin and call them to repent and believe. Otherwise, we're just fooling them. Peter is the prime example of that. And what we see in Peter, he falls flat on his face, denies Christ. I really think one of the most heinous things that you could possibly do. But then we see later on that Jesus completely restores him. Jesus completely restores him and invests in him. And he becomes one of the greatest leaders in all of Christian history. That is the grace of God. Let us not fool ourselves into thinking there's anything in us that, that causes God to love us. It is his grace. And let us then hold on to that grace and be mindful to tell people the truth of the gospel. Lovingly, without question, 
You know, sometimes people need a tender touch, absolutely, but we must always bring them back to that place where they see who they really are so they can see the glory and the beauty of Christ and repent and believe and live. Let us be that church who is that voice in the darkness and this world who's not afraid You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.